Genesis chapter 3, we're in the midst of a sermon series called Surrounded. Now, I don't know if you have noticed this or not, but there is something wrong with our world. Right? I mean, there's, our world is messed up. It seems like every week, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, but it's true. It seems like every week I could stand here and we could talk about a tragedy or something bad that's happened in our, in our world that, that like hits close to home or something. You know, a couple of weeks ago it was a hurricane, natural disaster. This week it's been man-made stuff. It's been the bombs that were sent to several people. It's been the, um, the shooting yesterday in a synagogue in Pittsburgh. I mean, it just seems like every time we stand up here, there is a fresh example of the evil that exists in our world. In fact, I'm not so sure that in our day and time, when we begin to talk to people about what it means to follow Jesus, about the realities of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, and how he has an impact on our lives, I'm not so sure that the place to start isn't by saying something like, man, our world is messed up. Because it is hard to deny right now that our world is messed up. And people are looking for answers all over the place. They're trying to figure out, well, how can it be that bad? How can it be that terrible? I was reading this week about an NPR, National Public Radio journalist, named Scott Simon. And Scott Simon was a guy that says that he was brought up in a family and in journalism schools and in the places he ran, that they never used the word evil. He said, in fact, for us, it was a cartoonish moral concept that evil didn't exist, that it was just poor choices or life circumstances or things that were happening. And he said all that changed when he was sitting with his daughter about a year and a half ago and they saw the reports of the chemical attacks on the Syrian children. There's so much that happens in our news. You may not even remember that happening, but it was in the spring of 2017. Horrific images of how the leader in Syria had gassed some of his own people, children included. And he said as he sat there watching it with his daughter, his daughter said, how could anyone ever do that? And he says, as a parent, I'd grown to feel that it was important to tell my children about evil. Because I was not just having to explain cruel and incomprehensible behavior that happened in history I was having to explain it happening now. He said, then I went and interviewed a guy named Romeo Dallaire, who commanded the UN peacekeeping forces in Rwanda in 1993 and 94, when more than 800,000 Tutsi Rwandans were slaughtered in three months. 800,000 in three months. This UN peacekeeper, Dallaire, said that what happened there made him believe in evil. He said, but more than just evil, I began to believe in something called the devil. He said, because I've negotiated with him, shaken his hand. There is no doubt in my mind that the expression of evil in our world is the devil at work using human beings and turning them into machines of destruction. The world is looking for an answer to what's wrong. And we're in a series talking about the reality that our world is part of a spiritual cosmic battle that is consistently happening around us. And as a result, we are caught in the middle of good versus evil, not just in a white hat versus black hat western kind of way, but in a real everything is consequential kind of way. The verse that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks is Ephesians chapter 6, 
verses 10 through 12, that say, finally, be strengthened, not in your own strength, don't get your own stuff up, but be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. The strength literally that in uh, a few chapters earlier was used to describe the strength that rose Jesus from the grave. That strength is available to us. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil, the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. The battle that we are raging is not against flesh and blood. Now, there are flesh and blood that are being used in the midst of that battle, and it will seem like our battle is against flesh and blood, but behind it is a spiritual reality. And as we struggle day in and day out, we must remember that our enemy is not another person. It is the enemy of God. 1 Peter 5.8 describes our enemy this way. Be sober-minded, be alert, be ready, be always looking. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. That our enemy is walking around like a lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Now, why do you think Peter chose the image of a lion? Of all the animals he could have chosen, why did he choose the lion? That's good, somebody else. Why did he choose the lion? Strength, might. It's also like the thing that kills everything else. Right? It's kind of like top of the food chain. Like we like to think of ourselves as top of the food chain, and we are, but in Peter's day, they didn't have the things that we would use to tame a lion today. Like if a lion was charging after you, the only hope you still have is that you have something in your weaponry that could take out the lion, right? If you walked out your front door, taking your dog out in the morning, and you're just in your shorts and a t-shirt, and you walk out and there's a lion on your front yard, you're not going to go after the lion, correct? Y'all, y'all are acting like that's not a big deal, like y'all not going to go after the lion, like I walked out the other day and Stella was over there, you know, you know, sniffing around, looking around, and she got tense all of a sudden. I was like, "Go, come on, ain't nothing going on around here. Nothing. In, it's a neighborhood, suburban. We're fine." And about that time, like five deer ran past my house, and I went inside and cried for a little bit. I was a little scared. I didn't really. I didn't. I mean, it's just three or four seconds. All right, so. But you know what I mean? Like, I got startled, like, ah, right? Imagine that's a lion. It's the most intimidating animal in the world. Like, I've seen lions at zoos, behind glass, or at Disney, riding in a car that I assume can get away fast if we need to, right? Maybe that's a poor assumption. Maybe the lions could come eat us. I don't know. I watched a documentary about a guy that went to live with the lions. And you know what we call that guy? Crazy. That's what we call that guy. And one of the lions tried to attack him. Because to the lion, that's not his friend. That's potential food. And to the enemy, you are potential food. How do I know that? Because he says the lion's looking for what? Anyone he can what? Devour. Y'all know what devour means, right? Eat. 
So that's the enemy we have. And what I thought we would do today is go back to Genesis chapter 3 and look at in Genesis chapter 3 this idea of what is this enemy that we're facing? Who is the enemy? How did he get here? What does he do to try to tempt us, to try to get us? And what I want to start with this saying at the very top is that we must be careful because C.S. Lewis has put it greatly. He said there are two equal and opposite errors that we can fall into when we're talking about devils. The first is to ignore them and say they don't exist. The second is to become overly infected infatuated with them and think about them all the time. He said they are happy with either way. And so I want to remember that yes, we have an enemy that is, and we're going to talk about him today, that is formidable, that is strong, and that has power. But we have an enemy that is limited and defeated as well. And I want us to find a balance there because I'm afraid we fall into one or the other camps where we're so concerned about, oh, what's he going to do to me? What's he going to do to me? That we don't live in the power that comes from Jesus. Or we are so like, well, it doesn't matter. He's not that big of a deal. That we don't realize the attacks that are coming into our lives and he finds a place to attack. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Oh, we can eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God says, You can't eat that one or you'll die. (laughs) You're not going to die, Eve. That's just crazy talk, Eve. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes are going to be open. You'll be just like Him. You'll know good and evil. You'll be just like God. And the woman saw the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now here's the thing. This passage, these verses, it is only seven verses And there are a few things in life that people talk about and say, and things were changed forever. But literally, when this happened, these seven verses, the events that took place in these seven verses, literally changed the world forever. Changed the way God would interact with people. Changed the way that God would... Now, it didn't catch God by surprise. It wasn't like he was like, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. But it changed the world forever. And in the midst of it, it's interesting because it's the first time we get a glimpse of the enemy of God, who is the enemy of those of us who follow God, and what happens in our lives through him. And so those three questions I mentioned at the first, I just want to talk about today, which is, first of all, who is our enemy? Scripture describes him here, it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals. The idea here is that he is treacherous, that he is cunning, that he is able to trick people. Here's the first thing we can say about our enemy is that he is real. The Bible is not ambiguous about this point at all. It doesn't argue for the existence of Satan, just like it doesn't argue for the existence of God. Because the Bible assumes from the very beginning that God exists. It also assumes from the very beginning that Satan exists. It's just a fact in the Bible. Before it, it doesn't have to prove it. Satan is in the beginning of the Bible, literally, in Genesis chapter 3. Three chapters in, Satan is introduced. Satan is in the middle of the Bible. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, David is is coerced by an evil spirit, by Satan, to take a census of the land that God told him not to take. And he's at the end of the book in Revelation 12, 9, when he is thrown and defeated by God's armies. He's in the beginning. He's in the middle. He's in the end. 
Jesus is not ambiguous about his belief in Satan. He spoke of Satan, referred to Satan 25 times in his teaching. And he had a personal encounter with Satan with his temptation in the wilderness. After 40 days of fasting, he is tempted by Satan. Satan didn't send one of the underlings to see him. Satan didn't send one of the other ones to take care of Jesus. Satan went himself to tempt Jesus. Jesus and Satan had a showdown in the wilderness. He's real. Now, one of the things that will happen this week is as we have Halloween and probably even tonight, there will be people dressed up in some form of a depiction of him. In fact, when I say the word Satan, some of you immediately get in your mind like a guy with a with pitchfork and a red suit and a tail coming out of the back. And there may be kids running around, cute little kids. And so sometimes you get into the habit of thinking, ooh, that's, that's, he's a cute little Satan. I almost sound like the church lady from back in the day. Y'all remember that? Did y'all get that? It's just, it just Sometimes it just comes. 80s just flows, all right? And, it, and there's nothing cute about the enemy of God. In fact, he wants you to think that he's not that big of a deal. Our enemy is real. And we know who he is and how he operates from the names that the Bible uses to describe him. The name used most in the New Testament is Satan, which means adversary. Which means one who opposes God's agenda, one who works against God's people, one who assaults God's plan. He is the adversary of God. The second one that's used the most is devil, and that means slanderer. It means someone that says false things. It means someone that ruins reputations. It means someone that loves false witnesses, that loves juicy gossip. Satan is someone who is consistently looking to spread lies and innuendo about the people of God so that it causes disruption in their lives and dysfunction in their churches. If there are gossipy things going around the church, can I tell you where it did not come from? It did not come from the Lord. That's where the devil is. Accusing people, ruining reputations, false witnesses, juicy gossip. In scripture, he's called the evil one ten times. It means absolute corruption. It's the kind of word that was used about things like human trafficking and would be used in our day about things like terrorism and synagogue shootings and school shootings. It is the absolute corruption about Syrians' uh, chemical weaponry against their own people and children. It is absolute corruption. He's called the tempter, the one that takes the good things that God gives us for desires and has us fill those with artificial means. Food, rest, ambition, sex, work. He says, those are things that God has given us desires for. And Satan says, fill them with things that aren't good. The tempter. In scripture, he's called Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. In their day, Beelzebub was a pagan idol that would protect people from flies, which is a major nuisance and problems for people of that day. The Hebrews said that Beelzebub was the god of absolute filth. He's called Lucifer because he's a deceiver. He looks like he is light. He can mimic and counterfeit God, but he is not God. He is not our Lord. He's called the prince of this world, the master of false systems, the governments, of cultures, of philosophies, of religions. And he's called the accuser of God's people, the accuser of the brethren, which means he consistently accuses us before God about things that we have done in the past or he thinks we will do. He consistently goes to the Lord and says, well, what about, well, look at what they're doing. Well, look at how they're acting. We get a picture of this in the book of Job when they are in the council of God and he goes and says, God says, what about my friend Job? And he says, we've never the bad's ever happened to him. 
Let me take care of him. He is the master counterfeiter. He is the enemy of God who attacks God's people, who attacks God's church, who attacks God's plan. That is our enemy. There's nothing cute about that. Second question, well, how did he get here? I mean, my question specifically is, how does Satan end up in the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden is what? Literally paradise. Place of perfection. How did our enemy get here? How did he get to earth? How was he able to be here? Question on the table is, what is the devil doing in the Garden of Eden? Well, you see, before God created man, God created angels. And one of the angels he created was an angel named Lucifer, whose job it was as one of the preeminent angels to lead the rest of the angels in the worship of God. And as he's in his job leading the other angels in the worship of God, he gets full of himself and how good he is. One day he looks in the mirror and says, I think I could do God's job. Tony Evans says that he got a theo-ego, a God complex. He says, why can't I be like God? In fact, Ezekiel 28 says that he welled up with pride and sought to be like God. Isaiah 14 tells us that he wanted to occupy the very house of God, that he wanted to ascend to heaven, that he wanted to hold the highest place. He wanted to be ruler over angels, not a higher form of angel. He wanted to be the ruler over the angels. It says that he wanted to raise his throne above the stars. He wanted preeminence in the universe. He wanted to sit in the mount of the assembly where God makes decisions. He wanted to ascend above the highest clouds where the praise was to be held. He didn't want to share God's praise. He didn't want to lead others to God's praise. He wanted to be praised like God. It says that he wanted to make himself like the Most High. He wanted to replace God. And God tells us one of the sins he hates most is the sin of pride. And so he led an attempted coup. A third of the angels followed him out of heaven. Now here's the problem when you try to rebel against God. It's hard to rebel against a God that knows everything. You can't have secret plans. It's hard to rebel against a God that is omnipotent, that has all power. God found him guilty of cosmic treason and banished him to death row until his eventual banishment forever into hell. And in our case, death row happens to be the third planet from the sun. He has been banished to here while hell is being prepared. So the third thing from this passage. How does he attack us? How does he work against us? What's well, all right here. I'm not, this isn't going to be a lot of leaps of stuff. It's right here in the passage. Verse 1. It's not going to be on the screen. So look at it here. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals. The Lord God had made. And he said to the woman. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? One says, we can eat of any tree except for one tree in the middle, and then we'll die if we touch it or eat it. He says, no, you don't. You don't die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. Five things that, God, that Satan will use to try just to move us away from God. The first is this. He will try to convince you that God is holding out on you. He tries to convince us that God's holding out on you. He looks at Eve, he looks at Adam, and he says, by the way, you know Adam was standing right next to her, right? Because it says that she took and ate and then she gave it to Adam. He was like right there. She says, he says, listen, God just doesn't want you to have all the good stuff. There's stuff God's holding out on you. He's being unreasonably unfair. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you. If he really loved you, he'd let you have that. I don't know why he's holding out. I don't know why he can't get that promotion. I don't know why he can't get that deal. I don't know why he can't get that place. I don't know why he can't get that car. I don't know why that God wouldn't allow you just to have this one thing you want. 
In our world, people talk about FOMO, the fear of missing out. I don't know if you realize this or not, but there are experiences, like experience places. For instance, like Walt Disney World or trips to New York or trips to Europe that have seen a massive spike in people wanting to do them since the invention of social media. Do you all know that? You know why? Because you get on social media and you're like, well... They went to Europe. I've never been to Europe. That looks like so much fun to go to Europe. Why can't we go to Europe? You know what my parents thought about Europe when they were growing up? We ain't never getting there. Right? Like, that's not an option. Like, I can't, I can't believe we haven't been to the Grand Canyon. I can't believe we haven't been to Hawaii. I mean, are we going to be able to do this before our kids are grown? Like, this fear of missing out. Satan cultivates that in our lives. You know, God just is trying to limit you unnecessarily. He just doesn't want you to have too much fun. You notice what he did here with her? He took her attention from all that God had given her and focused her attention on the one thing she didn't have. Aren't you glad we don't do that anymore? Right? Convinced that we've got to have it. I've seen this in the last few weeks with the sudden arrival of the Christmas magazines from stores at my house right we're we're down one no toys r us this year but there is the targets already shown up at our house i'm sure others will be on the way it's none of them compare to the sears wish book of yesteryear but they are there and my kids will go through and circle about nine thousand dollars worth of stuff that we absolutely do not need can i get an amen in the house of the lord we ain't got room to put anywhere. We're going to have to get rid of stuff to get stuff. Don't get me. I'm, I'm already kind of started. All right. And it's this thing. Well, I've got to have it. It's new. It's out there. I've got to have it. As adults, we do the same thing. So I told you last week that we're driving a rental truck. Okay. And so we, it's not big enough to hold the whole family. That's okay. We're making do. But last week I was uh, I was driving it and I I did not have a cord to charge my phone in the vehicle for like a week. I don't know how I survived life like that, right? But I didn't have one, and so I plugged it in. I brought it in. Oh, I don't have the little charger thing to stick in the. It used to be a cigarette lighter. They don't do that anymore. Now it's just a power cable. So I used to stick it in there. And so I don't have that. So I stuck it into the console. You know how they have the USB in some of those cars. Stuck it in there. Plugged it into my phone. Set the phone down. All right, it's charging. And suddenly on the screen in front of me, all my apps appeared on the touch screen. And I was like, wow. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Right? Like I can control my whole phone from there. Only apps that are music or phone or a message, it reads my messages to me. Like I've got the Bluetooth connection in my car, but I don't have this. I told Susan I'm getting spoiled by the CarPlay in the car, right? Isn't it amazing how we so easily focus on what we don't have? God said you couldn't eat any tree in the garden. Oh, no, no, we can eat of every tree except the one. Well, why can't you have the one? Why? What's so wrong with that one? He tries to convince you that God's holding out on you. What's the one thing you want in your life that you just can't seem to get? And how much of a hold does it have over you? Second thing Satan does. He tries to convince us that God's word cannot be trusted. God says... First of all, he 
alters what God actually says. He says, God said you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden. That's not what he had said. And then when she says, no, he says we can't eat it, we will die. He says, you're not going to die. God wouldn't do that to you. As Satan seeks to diminish the goodness of God in our minds, one of his techniques is to get us to doubt the word of God. When we're not familiar with God's word, it leaves us open to questions about God's word and it allows him to manipulate the word of God in our lives more than we would want him to be able to do. I mean, it's pretty bold to call God a liar, right? And yet that's what Satan does right here. He says he wouldn't do that to you. His word isn't trustworthy. He wants us to doubt what God's word says to us. He wants us to doubt that God's word is the word of God. Well, you just take what you like out of that. You just, you just go through there. You find those verses that you really like. If you don't like a few verses, you just, you just don't worry about those. God, you don't have to worry about that. He tries to convince us that we can't trust what we've been given. We can trust ourselves. We can trust our own likes. We can trust our own thoughts. We can trust our own mind. We know ourselves better than anybody else. We can trust ourselves instead of God's word. Third thing he does. He tries to convince us that sin carries no consequences. One definition of sin is that it is contrary to the holiness of God. That means that God and sin cannot exist in the same environment. Satan chooses to blur out that there are going to be consequences to our sin. It's not going to be that bad. It's not going to be that terrible. God's really not going to punish you that big. It's not going to hurt anybody else. So what? What's the big deal? What's the big deal if that happens to you? It's not going to hurt anybody. It's just you. Nobody's going to know. What difference does it make? Sometimes I wonder, if Adam and Eve had known the consequences of their sin, would they still have chosen to take the bite? The answer to that question, I think, is unfortunately probably yes, because I know the consequences to sin sometimes in my life, and I still choose it. Now, I can't always choose how big those consequences are. In fact, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequences of your sin. I mean, you think about David and Bathsheba. David started sin by looking at a woman he wasn't supposed to look at that led to a place where he brought her to his home when he wasn't supposed to do that, to an act that he shouldn't have done. And then that led to him covering up and then having her husband killed. All of that led to a year of withering inside, he says, to an eventual birth of a son who would die and to a cleaving of his family that impacted him to the end of his life. Sin has real consequences. And Adam and Eve, when they chose to sin, the effects of that are being felt even now and will be until God sets everything right. The fourth thing, he tries to convince us we can be equal to God. Now what he tells Eve, God doesn't want you to be like him. That's the only reason he told you not to eat of that tree. We all would love if the world revolved around us. Because we are selfish people. We are people that think our way, our ideas, our understanding of life is the best way. And we love it when the world revolves around us. We are people who live in selfishness. I use this all the time, it seems, but... The easiest way to see that we are selfish people is if tonight, you all, I hope you all come into the fall festival, you all come, you have a good time, we walk around, we take some pictures, somebody takes some pictures of you, and you look at the picture, what's the one way you're going to determine whether it's a good picture or not? How you look in it, right? 
Like you're going to look first at you and then you'll look at everybody else after you look at you. But most of the thing, if you're good, if it's a good picture of you, you're thinking, man, that's a great picture. Any of you ever out there, like had a picture of you and your spouse taken and you look at it and you think, man, that's a great picture. And your spouse goes, I don't like that picture at all. Well, I think it's great. That's because you look good in it. I look terrible in it. It's a great picture. And the reality is, Satan promises us something that is not capable of being done. He says to Eve, you will be like God. Here's the problem. We can't at all, ever, in any way, come close. You discover that when you find problems in your life that you can't fix. You can't get it done. You can't figure it out. You can't do it on your own. You can't fix it. And Satan tries to convince us, if you'll just, you rule your life, you take care of it, you know you, you know what's best for you, you know what's best for your family, you know what's best right now for your job, for your career, you take care of you, you take care of your family instead of Trust the Lord. And here's the last thing he tries to convince us. He tries to convince us that if it feels good, we can just do it. Notice what it says about Eve there. He says she looked at it, and it looked good. And it was good to look at. And it was a desirable forgetting thing that she did not yet have. So she took it and she ate it. Satan promised her that if she just did it, it felt good, it would be okay. Here's the problem that we have to realize in our own lives. That when we sin, initially, oftentimes, sin feels good. It does. When you eat that extra donut, it tastes good. Amen? You just amen to sin. That's okay. But that's, it's alright. Just saying that. When you let the boiling that has been going on inside your life come out and you let that person have it. And initially that feels good. When you choose to make a decision that is not what God would want you to do, it often feels good in the moment. When people give in to sexual temptation, in the moment it feels good. When people choose to cheat financially to get ahead and they're able to buy that thing that they've always wanted, man, it feels good. When people who are prone to having issues with alcohol or drugs takes that drink or takes that hit, initially it feels good. Initially. But it always, sin will always take you farther, cost you more, and do more damage than you ever expected. That's how Satan got to the first couple, to Adam and Eve, and that's how he still tries to get to us. So how do we fight? Ephesians 6 tells us that we are to put on the full armor of God, that we are to stand against the schemes of the devil. That we are to fight in that way. But simply, I'll give you five things as we close and then we're done. I'll give you five things that you can do to live your life in opposition to what he tries to do. First of all, live your life in gratitude. Focus on what you have, not what you don't. Secondly, immerse yourself in the word of God. 
The only way that you can combat Satan trying to tell you not to trust the Word of God is to know the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to read the Word of God, to memorize the Word of God, so that when he comes at you, you have it. This is shown when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Satan comes at him three different times. Three different times he gives scripture from Deuteronomy, that chapter of that book that all of you have memorized completely, right? Amen? Deuteronomy, three times, he calls it forth because he had memorized it, he did know it, and he was able to say, that's not what God says, this is what God's Word says. Immerse yourself in the Word of God, trust in the Word of God. Thirdly, trust in the forgiveness of sins that comes when you are saved by Jesus. He wants to get you to beat yourselves up. Here's the thing about Satan, he'll tell you on the front end there are no consequences to your sin, just go for it, if it feels good, do it, do whatever you want to do, and then immediately when you step over that line and you begin to sin or you choose to sin or you go that direction, he comes on the other side and says, I can't believe you would ever do that. God must not love you anymore, God doesn't care about you anymore, you're a terrible person. How in the world could you ever let that happen? He begins to accuse you immediately. The way that we battle that is to say, listen, I know there are consequences to my sin, but I also know because I believe in Jesus Christ that my sin has been forgiven. Romans 8.1 tells me, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Not now, not evermore. God has forgiven me. God has saved me. He has changed my life. And though the consequences I may still have to deal with, the sin has been forgiven. Satan will tell you you're a terrible person. God will tell you to get rid of the sin. Those are two completely different things. God will attack the sin. Satan will attack you. And so if you're hearing in your mind, man, you need to quit that, you need to get rid of that, you need to quit doing that, that may be from the Lord. If you hear in your mind, you're a terrible person, how in the world did you ever think that? That is from Satan. Fourth, humble yourself. You're not God, and life is not about you. That's easier said than done, but it's not about you. And lastly, don't do something that feels good. Choose something greater. The ways of the Lord are greater than anything we can satisfy ourselves with in the here and now. So choose that. Live in gratitude. Immerse yourself in the word of God. Trust in the forgiveness of sin. Humble yourself before the Lord and choose to live for something more. Now we're going to continue next week in this series looking at the armor that God provides to be able to battle the enemy. But when we realize what he's trying to do, it helps us to defend ourselves against him. Let's bow together for prayer.